to take your Bible, and I would like you to open up to the book of Ezekiel. And when I say the book of Ezekiel, I mean the entire book of Ezekiel. A wonderful book. An incredible book. It's a story about somebody that God comes and says, I need you to take a message to somebody. And that's not uncommon, right? I mean, God has done that before. We see, you know, and there, there are many prophets. There are many people that God gave a message to, and he said, I want you to go take this. But there's some uniquenesses to Ezekiel. But before we do, I want to tell you of a time real briefly when I was less, it was less than four months after my 16th birthday. And less than four years before I would lose my dad. And I was being a knucklehead. And I was, I had the Chevette. Yes, I said it, Chevette. Look that one up. <laughs> And I was coming around a corner faster than I should. And a dog kind of darted across, and I avoided the dog. But the car plowed through a fence and rolled down an embankment onto oncoming traffic. Scariest moment of my life. Until I had kids, right? But... (laughs) I didn't know what to do. Now, luckily, we weren't hurt. And I give God the credit for that because seatbelts were a suggestion, if that, back then. And my, you know, I, we walked back because, of course, there was no cell phone. So I walked and, you know, to the mall and went to the Dillard's, called my dad. My dad came and, you know, and we kind of went through that. He got the cops there. And I mean, it was just, the whole process was frightening to me. And I remember being very scared of my dad, as well I should. And somehow, don't ask me how, but that car could drive. And with a sound like nothing I've ever seen, except maybe in a cartoon, dad drove it the five miles home. And it stayed there in our driveway for a little while until we sorted things out with the insurance. And I can remember being scared. I can remember just not knowing what to say or or anything like that. And my dad wouldn't even talk to me that night. He just said, I think it's probably best you just go to bed. And the next day was a Saturday, and I got up early. I mean, even by Saturday standards. So I was up, and I was mowing the yard before the sun was up, and, you know, just doing all of those things. And finally, it was after lunch that Dad kind of met me in the garage, and he just had something very simple to say. And that's really all he wanted to say at the moment. He says, This isn't pleasant. It's going to be good. It depends on your choices. That's all he said. And he was right. It was not fun. 
I mean, I had to ride the bus again. I wasn't allowed to ride with friends. I had to ride the bus. This was wintertime. I stood at the bus stop and the indignity of it all. I stood there and answered questions when the tow truck came and picked up the car and everybody in the neighborhood gathered around. It was not pleasant at all. But it would be good. And it became good. Eventually, you know, we cleaned up all the oil spots in the driveway. Eventually, you know, I was able to save up money and he helped and we bought a vehicle and, and it was fine. It was good. He explained that his biggest issue that night was he thought he'd lost his son. And what I saw was anger, was fear in a man that I'd never seen scared of anything. And I tell you this to kind of get you in the mood to look at the book of Ezekiel. Because that is exactly how this book is written. In a way that is, is unique amongst all the books of the Bible. It's just, it, it's written that way. It isn't pleasant. It becomes good. But it's all about choices. And if you turn and if you open up to the beginning of the book of Ezekiel, understand, and we won't go blow by blow, we won't even go chapter by chapter, but understand what's happening here. Much like so many of these messages that God sends to his people, his people are messing up in a big time sort of way. And so what he's going to do is he's going to send them. But this isn't like just any sort of mess up. This isn't going to be a call to repent like maybe, you know, Jonah had. This is not going to be a call to, to change things, maybe the way Nathan did when Nathan went. Understand that Israel during this time, God's people were suffering. The Babylonians were just raining absolute terror on them. Their lives were miserable. It started with the Assyrians, and then it went to the Babylonians. It was just a horrible time. They were imprisoned. They were beaten up. They were enslaved. Everything about it was. But here's the thing. All of it was because they were disobedient to God. And God allowed that to happen. And so when Ezekiel is going to take this message to them, He's not going to ask them to change their ways. What he wants, he's going to get them to understand is the reason things are messed up for you is because of the choices that you've made. And when you excluded God, you brought all of this on you. Folks, there is nothing more unpleasant than to deal with the ramifications of choices we wish we hadn't made. And that's exactly what happens in the book of Ezekiel. That God's people individually, collectively, as a nation, were suffering those consequences. God calls them. And we see this call there kind of in verses, in chapters 2 and 3. And then from, you know, until we get to about chapter 32, from that point on, we see how God asks Ezekiel to tell them over and over again the unacceptability of their sins, the consequences of the sins, and the fact that the reason that they're in the situation they're in is because of the choices that they made, and it offends God. 
not just that they're doing it, but it offends God that they're trying to go life without him. And so he goes through that for 32 chapters. That's what they hear. And for 32 chapters, then, I mean, he also talks about pagan nations and everything else, how Egypt was messing up, how the Ammonites, the Edomites, Philistia, everybody like that is messing up. And they're going to get the wrath and the judgment of God. And to this group of people, for 32 chapters, as they hear this, it isn't something that is about to happen. This is not 32 chapters of or else. This is 32 chapters of this is why. And then from chapters 34 to the end of the book, it picks up in kind of a fun way. I say fun, but it remember, this isn't pleasant. It's going to be good. And from about chapters 34 or so on, what God begins to do is the other thing he now asks Ezekiel to tell them is to speak the restoration story about the effort and the diligence and the love that God is going to pour into his people in order to restore them, in order to keep them safe, to bring about forgiveness, to bring about love back in their heart, to reunite them. In fact, well, we'll get to that in just a second. We don't want to ruin a good ending by putting it in the middle. What I want you to do, though, is I want you to turn to chapter 8. And then we're, that's where we're going to spend some time. And I understand that I promise to have you out on time. We'll see what happens. I know John will have you out on time, so let's just go with that. But in chapter 8... Chapter 8 is this unique story because to a lot of prophets, what would happen is God would come and tell them, here's the message I want you to give. And they would go and they would take that message. Again, unless you're Jonah, in which case you find a ship that's going someplace else. But ultimately, what you do is you parrot back exactly what God has said to you, and that is the message you give. Now, in chapter 8 of Ezekiel, he does something very different with Ezekiel. Because it's not enough that God gives him specifics to say what he's trying to do is he, what he, and he does is he brings Ezekiel in on the emotion. Not just the facts, but the emotion. And what he wants to do is he wants to show Ezekiel this, the abomination of what is going on. Now he could have just said, Ezekiel, go tell this. Go say these words, and Ezekiel would have done it, and everything would have been fine. But in in chapter 8, we get three dimensions. We get color. It becomes quite the painting here. Because what he does is, I want to show you, Ezekiel, what they're doing. And it's not that God is telling on them. That's not. But he's trying to get them so that when Ezekiel comes and he speaks, he can speak with the emotion that comes with understanding how things resonate with God. In fact, if you open it up and if you look at your Bible, this is no ordinary interaction, in fact. If you start there in verse 3, he says, he stretched out the form of a hand. Okay? Now understand what's about to happen here. This isn't going to be some little kind of, you know, PowerPoint that God's going to give them. 
The Bible says in Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 3, some form of a hand grabbed me by the back of the head and showed me something. That's how serious God was with this. Not because Ezekiel was fighting or that God is a God that likes to manhandle his people, but God wanted him to, I want you to see what's going on. And there are times, quite frankly, when we would do well to thank God for the times that he grabs us by the back of the head and points us in a direction. Not to change what we're doing, but to change what we're seeing. And that's exactly what happens here. So he, he, he does this, and then what he's going to show them? He's going to show them four things, and we're going to just go through the list. And, what I, and, and if you want to, you've got the option of listening to these four things and calling them, eh, those are Old Testament things. If you want to, you, you're, you're certainly more than welcome to dismiss them, maybe, as being antiquated. Not something that would happen today. You could do that. I think you'd be mistaken. But why don't you give it a whirl with me here? The first thing he shows them is in verses 5 through 6. Jealousy. Not just jealousy. But this idol of jealousy. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us what the idol looked like or anything like that. But what the Bible says is Ezekiel sees this vision. The vision is kind of there in in the north, just inside the north gate of the tabernacle area. And where once they used to, that's where they would kill the, the animals that would be sacrificed. So that's kind of where the, you know, sacrifices would start. Instead, the Bible says there in verses five and six, Then he said to me, son of man, raise your eyes toward the north. So I raised my eyes toward the north and behold to the north at the altar gate was this idol of jealousy at the entrance. And he said to me, son of man, do you see what they're doing? The great abominations, which the house of Israel are committing here so that I would be far from my sanctuary. Underline that if you want to. But it's this idea of jealousy. And if there's anything that will mess us up in our walk with God, it's jealousy. If you go to Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 19, it talks about the deeds of the flesh. And one of the things that he spells out is jealousy. Wanting what other people have. Wanting something other than what you have. Wanting something, resenting the way that God would bless others because you feel more deserving. And it had gotten to the point that there was, in essence, an altar right there. Where once the people dealt with sacrifice, they now dealt with jealousy. And it consumed them. And one of the things that you will see is kind of as we step through these four things, God does it in a pretty unique way. And that God says, yeah, you're going to see some things and it's going to be offensive, but wait, you're going to see something even worse. And that's what he says there in in verse eight. He, 
He says, but you will see still greater abominations. And again, go back just a, a half a, you know, a, a sentence in all of that. Understand, and this is what made God so upset. And this is what makes it potentially more profound for us. Because this jealousy, this altar of jealousy had the effect that God was driven out of, look at what he says, he didn't say their hearts, he didn't say their homes, he didn't say their assembly, what he says is that I've been driven out from my sanctuary. And you begin to understand the boldness of what the people were doing. He goes on to say then in in verses 7 through 13, he talks about hidden idolatry. That's exactly what he's talking about. In verse 7 he says, Then he brought me to the entrance of the court. And one of the things you'll notice is we're kind of getting more and more inclusive in some of this. We're kind of in the central of of how they worship. And behold, a hole was in the wall. Now, he didn't say peek through the hole. He says there in in verse 8, Son of man, now dig through the wall. So I dug through the wall, and behold, there was an entrance. And he says, go and see the wicked abominations that they are committing here. Now understand why he tells Ezekiel that you've got to dig through this hole in the wall. Because what he's going to describe is idolatry. But it's not just any old idolatry. And he's going to describe how the, you know, kind of the surroundings, you know, had been replaced with kind of these, these ornate carvings of the things which they desired, the things that were important to their life. But the whole issue here, I mean, that, not that that wasn't bad enough, was this idea that it was hidden. It was back there, you know, to the point that Ezekiel had to dig a hole to go see it. And what God said about it, is that standing in front of them were 70 elders of the house, which as an eye of the son of Shapham, he goes on to say, verse uh, 12, Son of man, do you see what the elders of the house of Israel are committing in the dark, each man in a room of his carved images? Here's where we get to the part that really stings. For they say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken us. The issue was idolatry. The issue was the kind of the, the idols that they served, the things that they found more important than God. But the thing that, the, the issue that really made it an abomination to God was all of this was hidden by a group of people that somehow thought that, that God couldn't see it. And the reason they thought that God couldn't see it is because they assumed that because they were going through what they were going through, God must have forsaken them. And that infuriated God. That was the abomination. And so, okay, here we are. We're two. Jealousy. Idolatry. Not just any idolatry. The idolatry that we hide because we think that maybe God doesn't notice. Because others don't notice. Maybe God doesn't notice because... He's not blessing me the way that I would have hoped. Then we move on. And to me, this is an interesting one. They're all interesting and sad. In verse 14. And again, he ends 13 with, hey, there's an abomination that's coming that's even greater. Then it says in verse 
14, uh, he brought me to the entrance of the gate of the Lord's house, which was toward the, the, the north, and behold, women were sitting there weeping for Tamas. And he said to me, do you see this son of man? Yet you're going to see something worse. And it's just the very simple vision of there at the north, what he sees as people weeping for Tamas. Now, Tamas was not a kitten that ran out in the road. Tamas was actually a very interesting and kind of one of the older Babylonian gods. And it was kind of right on up there. It was the Babylonian god that had to do with rain and vegetation. It was a very popular god during farming. And what was interesting about this god was it, unlike so many of the other gods that just sort of existed, like Aphrodite and Diana and, and any of those others that you want to pick, unlike a lot of those other gods, they acknowledge that this god dies in the fall, right? Because that's the only way they could explain the fact that, well, there's harvest and things get brown and, and the vegetation doesn't really grow, but then in the spring, and so for this god, he dies in the spring, or excuse me, in the fall, and he comes back in the spring, That he is somehow deaf, has no authority over him. He comes back. He rises from the dead. And what would happen is people would gather together and they would be sad in the fall. Because the God had died. Tamus was dead. Now he would resurrect in the spring, so the story went. But what God says is, look at them. They weep over a God that doesn't even exist. And not just any God, they weep over a God that they will give resurrection status to. That was an abomination to God. And he said, but don't worry. You're going to see something worse. Beginning in verse... 16 through 17. Verses 16 through 17, the last thing that we see is how they worship celestial bodies. They basically are worshiping the sun. And the Bible says that, he says, and he brought me to the inner court of the Lord's house. The place where prayers were to be offered continually. And behold, at the entrance of the temple of the Lord, behold, the porch and the altar were about 25 men with their backs to the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the sun. Now the temple, that was the presence, the existence of God. And they had turned their backs to God so they could look up and worship the sun. That was the fourth and final abomination that God wanted him to see. And so he did. The jealousy and their idol of jealousy. The hidden idolatry. The compassion for a pagan. And finally, the absolute overt turning of their back to God so they could worship the sun. showed that to Ezekiel in a fairly strong fashion so that when Ezekiel 
took the message, that emotion would not get missed. And like I said, and so for 32 chapters, that's what they got. And you can you begin to understand why God would be so frustrated with it. You also begin to think why there's days he probably gets pretty frustrated with us. As jealousy causes us to do things. How we try to hide our idolatry so that no one will notice. How we're compassionate toward pagan things. And how sometimes, while maybe we don't mean to, we do turn our backs on God and worship other things. But like I said, unlike just a pronouncement of guilt and destruction, beginning in verse 34, you begin to see the restoration of Israel. Things are unpleasant. Things are very unpleasant. Things are going to get good. And for the balance of the book then, What the Bible talks about is how they are going to be redeemed. They're going to be reunited. The kingdom is going to come back together. He's going to deal with those that that deal with them. That they're going to be restored. And he talks about the building of the temple. And he goes to great lengths to describe, you know, not just the, you know, the inner temple, the outer temple. He's going to describe kind of the chambers within the temple. You know, all of this, the restoration of God. The restoration of God in their lives. The restoration of God as the sovereign one and the only one. It was unpleasant. It's going to get good. In fact, the book ends on such a phenomenal note. There in the last few verses, it talks about how the city gates are going to be named for the very 12 tribes. Again, showing that, you know, the, that God's people are coming together. But the part that I really love is the very end of the book, the very end of the chapter. He says, the city shall be 18,000 cubits round about, and the name of the city from that day shall be the Lord is here. It was unpleasant. It was going to be good, but it all depended on choices. And we see that in chapter 33. And that's kind of where we will end. In chapter 33, Ezekiel is informed of his role in this process. And the whole issue here that goes on in chapter 33 is this idea of, as a watchman, is what God calls him. He says, And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, speak to the sons of your people and say to them, If I bring a sword upon the land and the people of the land, take one man from among them and make him their watchman. And he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows on the trumpet and warns the people. Then he who hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning, and a sword comes and takes him away, his blood will be on his own head. Now, the Bible goes on to say, basically say, hey, look, I am sending a messenger. I am sending the watchman. If you make the right choice, or let's start, first he starts with the wrong. If you make the wrong choice, the blood is on your head. Not the head of Ezekiel, the head of the one who listened and chose to do nothing. 
He says, but if the watchman sees the sword coming, does not blow the trumpet, and the people are not warned, and a sword comes and takes a person from them, he is taken away from his iniquity, but his blood I will require from the watchman's head. Okay, that makes sense. He said, okay, if you, li- if you don't listen, but if the watchman doesn't tell you. Now as for you, son of man, I have appointed you a watchman for the house of Israel. So you will hear a message from my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you will surely die. And you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way. That wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require from your hand. But if you, this is the, the punchline, on your part warn a wicked man to turn away from his way, and he does not turn from his way, he will die in his iniquity. But you have delivered your life. It's God's way of saying, there's a choice. This morning, for some of you, it is unpleasant. It is awkward. It isn't fun. And what I'm here to tell you is it can be good. It does not have to stay unpleasant. It took, I think, about a month before things got good with me and dad. And again, he would pass away less than four years after that. But I'll never forget when it got good. We were kind of doing something in the garage, and, and finally I just kind of had to, I had to say it. And I just looked at him and... I said what he, I'm sure, knew at the time. Dad, there was no dog. I was just driving too fast. It was unpleasant. But in that moment, it got so good. Admitting who we are and coming to grips with that isn't pleasant. But when you meet the God of mercy and the son who died on your behalf, it doesn't get any better. If you've got a need, we invite you to speak to an elder or anybody. We invite you to make it good while together we stand and sing.